Christmas and welcome to the 81st episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a contributor to The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC Whiteout. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to comics to novels to horror to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's guest is Kent Babb, the Washington Post sports writer and the author of one of my all-time favorite sports books, Not a Game, The Incredible Rise and Unthinkable Fall of Allen Iverson, which was released in 2015. The book is an unflinching, unsparing, inspiring, and crushing look at the former NBA star, and I had a gazillion questions about it. We also dive into a magnificent piece Ken wrote earlier this year for The Post about former Chiefs running back Larry Johnson and his post-football troubles. So pour some eggnog, slice some ham, or whatever it is you guys do when I'm sneaking Chinese food into a movie theater, and enjoy two writers, Sling and Yang. All right, Kent, so I'm reading Not a Game, The Incredible Rise and Unthinkable Fall of Allen Iverson, and I picked it up as research because I'm working on a, a book about the Lakers from, from sort of a parallel era, and you try to read every book from the era you're writing about, and a lot of the stuff you read ends up being sort of you know, not, not that anyone did a horrible job or anything, but kind of forgettable and stuff you don't care that much about. And I pick up this book, and I'm just completely absorbed. <laughs> I think it's one of the best sports books I've ever read. I really do. But I'm mystified by it. And this is where I want to start. I'd say the vast, vast, vast majority of sports books, I'd say 99.9% of sports books, uh, go chronologically. It's just the way you do it. It's the way I've always done it. You have a beginning, you have an end, and you just follow that path. I still can't figure out what the hell order this book is in, uh, but that's not an insult because I love this book. I'm like, I'm trying, I keep trying to think, all right, what, when he was piecing it together, what was he, what, was there some, like, is there some overarching, like if I take the first letter of every chapter, does it spell, I love Marsha Brady? <laughs> like, is there something there that I don't? So I'm fascinated by the ordering of a book and how did you even decide how, what order to put this thing in? Cause it jumps from here to there, but it somehow completely works. Yeah, so um thank you. That's amazingly nice and I appreciate that and as you know, you know from having uh written books, I mean like it's it's always this huge leap of faith and like you never know if anybody's going to read it for one and certainly don't know if anybody's going to like it. So I mean like that's super cool that you say what you say about it and I mean I remember just like I only had like 9 months to report and write. So I had like a really quick turnaround. Luckily for me, I had kind of all of this like court material, like source material that I'd collected for the story that inspired this. And I didn't know what the hell to do with it. I mean, because like what I knew about Alan Iverson, kind of what I loved about the character of Alan Iverson had occurred 15 years earlier. I mean, and so there was like this huge kind of jump between what happened in like 1998, 2001 all the way up to like 2012, 2013. And there was this like gigantic kind of window that I didn't know. I didn't think it made any sense for me to hold what I thought was the best stuff. Like the reason you're reading this book for the end, you know, so if it was going to be kind of straight up chronologically, you know, in a traditional standpoint, you know, what I want to read, what I want to know about Iverson is, the stuff that in that case wouldn't come until the very end, you know, let, let's find out about his alcoholism. Let's find out about how, you know, he and his wife, you know, got along somehow. They had kind of this twisted and I guess still have this sort of twisted relationship. And I just didn't think it made 
narrative sense to hold all of that for the end. It'd be a great end, but I don't think anybody would get there because like everything, or for the most part, everything you knew, <clears throat> everything you read at the beginning and middle, you, you already knew. I mean, you, you would probably know about when he crossed over Jordan or knew about, you know, when he stepped over uh, Tyron Lou. So what I decided to do, and I, I just remember like sort of this eureka moment that, <laughs> and I'm not saying this was the right, way to do it i mean i i'm confident in it i'm really pleased to hear you say that it works because i i wouldn't bet my life that it worked i just wanted to go for it and so i just remember having this eureka moment of saying okay i'm not telling one story i'm telling two stories one of these stories is the iverson that we know and it's the guy that we know from the highlights and that's all we know we don't know what happened when the cameras went off or when we went home from the arena and the other is everything that we've never seen and so those are two stories and so what i would say is it is chronological but it's chronological starting when Iverson is a kid and we go forward. And that essentially ends, you know, when he achieves like the, the peak of his fame. And so that's the, I guess, spoiler alert. That's the end of that narrative thread. And then, you know, what I was trying to do is intersperse kind of what, like picking it up kind of immediately. Like I, what I wanted to do is blend what I called good Iverson and bad Iverson. That's Jekyll and Hyde character you know here's the guy we cheered for we were mesmerized by and here's somebody who's kind of scary and you know one doesn't really resemble the other one and i just wanted to intersperse the those and sort of thread them together throughout if i'm your editor in a way i'm thinking shit like there's a part of me that's thinking shit i i went through this i sort of learned a, a hard lesson that I've, I've largely ignored but you definitely get it with Walter Payton and a book on Walter Payton comes out and people freaking love Walter Payton. And there's a huge number of people who do not want to know that Walter Payton, you know, cheated on his wife and suffered from depression. And, you know, I heard from those people much more than I heard from the people who were like, great book, great book. And I feel like if I were your editor there, there's a part of me be like, wait a second, wait a second. People love this guy. They want to know. Yeah, we've seen it, but they want to know about the 2001 All-Star game. They want to know about the blah, blah, blah finals. And and I don't know if they want to know that he's an alcoholic and that he's horrible to his wife and his kids and he doesn't even know their teacher's names. Did you get any? Was there any concern over that? Was there any sort of blowback from that? Not blowback. I mean, I, I heard from those people. I mean, I, when my friend Stephen A. Smith kind of blasted the book, you know, I'm, I'm certain at Iverson's instruction, you know, this is all that has to do with uh, the drunk at the practice rant anecdote. And I remember doing those right after the thing came out. I think I did like 20 radio interviews in a day and every single one asked me about Iverson being drunk at the practice rant. Like Larry Brown called me and, you know, was kind of bitching at me about that chapter. And I was just like, Larry, you're the one who told me that, you know, like you're the one who is the first person who told me that he was drunk. And so it, like it just sort of became this thing. And, you know, like I just remember being like people being kind of, whipsawed by that and i just remember on twitter you know they're all you know like i stupidly would search my name sometime and there would be like several fuck kent bab tweets and stuff like that and and i'm just like well okay i mean i don't know if those people were gonna buy the book anyway you know and so i i just sort of lived with that and, and you know at least as far as you know my editor at the time you know was concerned i think he got it i think he understood you know kind of what i was trying to do and that there were these sort of two threads that I wanted to try to weave as best I could. And so I, I'm not going to, that's one of those where with a lot of people, with all the superstars these days, you're just not going to please everybody. I mean, there, there are certain swaths of people who just adore 
the idea of this person and, and kind of how it makes them feel. And, and part of me gets that. I mean, because Alan Iverson is, is in some ways the symbol of my youth. And I write it at one point in there. You know, he's like Tony Soprano. He's like Stone Cold Steve Austin. And I mean, when he was, you know, in 1998 or, or whatever, I mean, I graduated high school in 2000. And so like he was really kind of this like seminal figure in my upbringing. And, and that may be silly, but he was. And I just remember how much Alan Iverson is this anti-authority figure, like how he made me feel and like how empowered he made me feel. And the idea that he's like this super fragile, kind of weak human being does not square with that. And like, I don't love that. I don't love the fact that like he's really kind of this bad guy, this bad human being, I think, in a lot of ways. But I think that's the whole story. And I mean, like uh, the work that I do or try to do is is. I try, I've got one goal in every story I write, every book that I will ever write, and that's to be honest. And if you don't like it, cool, you know, and I get that. And, you know, but I'm, I'm never going to lie to the reader. I'm never going to, you know, kind of tell a certain story in any kind of varnished way because I, I've got to be able to live with myself at, at night. And like, in, in a weird way, I think, you know, people like Alan Iverson during that coming of age helped me achieve that. I mean, I just, I can't. I can't be something, I can't write something that I think is phony. And, and if I had, if I had written some kind of, you know, mascara laden thing about Alan Iverson as this misunderstood hero, I, I don't know if I could have, I don't know. I, I certainly don't think I would have written the book. I almost didn't to begin with. And I, I certainly don't think I could have if somebody said, well, it's got to be this, you know, sort of, you know, elevation of him into the stratosphere. Um, I just, I would have said thanks, but no thanks. There, there are a couple of things that I had, um, highlighted and I put, wow. By. And one was, um, it was when, when they were about to get, uh, Iverson and his, and his sort of girl, longtime girlfriend, Tawana, were about to get married. And the prenuptial was coming and she knew the prenuptial was coming. And you have, you wrote, um, there it was. She was calm, maybe even resigned. The time shortly before the wedding had mostly been one of peace, a rarity with them. And of course, this men had been too good to be true. Still, Tawana would read the agreement, determine if it was fair. And if so, she would sign it. Fair was fair. He was the one with the basketball career. That night, Iverson came over, holding the papers so Tawana could see them. She said nothing. He kept them between his fingers, and as Tawana waited for him to offer the document, she felt the tears on her cheeks. At that moment, neither of them saying a word, Iverson brought out a lighter, a prenuptial agreement that indeed had been drafted, but he would not allow Tawana to read it. Iverson touched the papers to the flame, and together they watched him burn. Okay. Iverson doesn't talk to you for the book. Tawana does not talk to you for the book. How do you get stuff like that? <laughs> well, in that case, it's pretty easy. I mean, um, for some reason, their divorce papers were not sealed in, in a court in a court in Atlanta. Like, so she took the witness stand at one point and there was uh, a deposition. And, mm -hmm. and thanks to the to the attorneys, because, I mean, they had unbelievable questions, unbelievable detail. And, you know, the dialogue, much of I mean, almost all the dialogue, certainly from her that you read in there is all taken straight. From those court papers. I mean, I had something like 700 pages of court papers that I was lucky enough to, uh, to, to get for this thing. And I remember like when I originally requested those for the story back in 2013, like the clerk of court emailed me and, you know, I mean, usually clerks of court are very kind of straight up, you know, straight, you know, down the, down you know, straight arrow kind of guys. And like they, they will not kind of offer an opinion or any kind of, you know, Hey, this is what you should expect. It's usually just like, sure. I'll pull the records for you. And I mean, I remember getting an email from this guy and he was just like, I think you're going to, 
you know, really like this. I'm like, okay, what should I expect? He's just like, I'm not going to tell you, but you're going to be blown away. And I mean, it's just like so detailed and, you know, there's this kind of amazing dialogue and, you know, detail about kind of what that looked like. And, and so all that came from, came from that. I mean, so I guess that would have been, uh, Tawana's attorney, uh, asking about that. And, and, and I'm, I, I spoke with attorneys on both sides for this too, just for some kind of extra, um, you know, reporting depth. But, but in that case, I mean, the attorney asked her about that kind of, what were you feeling? You know, she said that she started crying. He never let her see it. And I just like brought it out there, kind of brandished it. Just like, Here, here's what I'm supposed to give you, but I'm not going to. It was like this kind of symbol of what I believe the strength of our relationship is. I should say this actually is based off of a two that you wrote a story in, um, 2013, Allen Iverson, NBA icon, struggles with life after basketball. How did you even know what papers to go after? This this may sound simplistic, and and how to go after them? Like is that years and years of doing this? Is that asking around? Like how how do you even know where to file? What I'm filing? What I'm looking for? I mean, there was probably like a three month uh, period where I didn't know what I was looking for in Georgia or Atlanta, Fulton County. I can't remember now. It's been a while, but. It just has a really searchable database. Uh, like you plug names in, I think. And, uh, this had just happened. Just keep that in mind. So this would have been like April. The story came out in April 2013. I think February 2013 is when his divorce went final. Um, so this was still relatively fresh. And if there was a window in there, I just can't remember like that you can go in and kind of get these things, but. You can, you can put names in and, and I do a lot of that. I mean, I just like, and, and I would say 95% of you know, that time just goes for nothing. I mean, I've once spent, you know, an entire day for a completely different story, you know, writing emails to every high school coach, athletic director, and principal at every high school, college, junior college, and like rec department in every town that borders Mexico just to find one kid. And like, all you need is one. Um, but like most of what I do is kind of fruitless. Like I waste a lot of time and. But like then sometimes you plug the name in and it comes back and there's this, you know, kind of treasure trove of documents in, and, and look, I mean, I think that that book and my story were well reported, but without those documents, I don't think it's anything. I mean, there certainly never would have been a book. I don't think there would have been a story that we'd be talking about in any, in any way. It would have just been anecdotal. But I mean, the fact that he, he goes on in some detail about how little money he's got in, I mean, in, in these documents, which I still have somewhere, I mean, there's like copies of bank statements and text messages and, you know, the dialogue was probably the best for me. But, um, I, I mean, you don't, you don't ever get stuff like that. I mean, I just remember thinking like, okay, I, I got this kind of amazing, you know, treasure chest and, and I'll probably never get anything like that ever again. I, and I haven't, I mean, it's been what, six years and I haven't gotten anything even remotely like that. And frankly, that, that stuff probably should have been sealed and I don't know why it wasn't. But I mean, pure luck is the short answer to your question. I mean, just like I didn't know what I was looking for and, and it just happened to be something kind of amazing. You try talking to Iverson. It's in the acknowledgement section where you, uh, you went up to him and, uh, I hurried over taking the empty seat next to Iverson. Hello, Alan. I began. I know this isn't the time. Definitely isn't the time. Iverson said, seeing my notebook cutting me off, but doing it almost playfully. I figured he thought I hoped to interview him about Georgetown's new building. This was at Georgetown. But I'm the one who's writing the book about you, I continued. I don't know what you've heard, but I've spoken with Gary a number of times. I just want you to hear it from me. I offered him the page for my notebook, 
telling him that I was writing about every part of his life. Please call me anytime, day or night, if you want to share your version of anything. In the meantime, enjoy the day. Thanks, bro, Iverson said in the most sincere and appreciative way, pushing the paper into his pocket. And uh, you never heard from him. Did you ever think you would hear from him? When you're sitting there next to him, is there a moment where you're like, oh, maybe he'll call me? The thing about Alan Iverson is like he is absurdly engaging. I mean, he is is for as famous as he is and, you know, kind of this like A-list superstar for a time. I mean, he he makes everybody. That's why I think people have a hard time quitting him is like he makes everybody feel kind of special. And I mean, just in those we're talking like 25 seconds or whatever, I was just like, man, like this guy, you know, he might call me. And it would have put me in a real pinch because, I mean, we're talking about this is like a month before my manuscript was due. So, like, there's like that little voice and it's just like, oh, God, like, what if he does call me? I've got to rewrite this whole thing. And, you know, but like also I I didn't like when I left there, I was just like, man, like, is there any way this guy calls me? I mean, because I think that if, even if you wanted to, you know, he starts talking to Gary Moore, who is kind of his manager, kind of his handler a guy that he goes way back with and Gary for better or worse, like has a very cautious streak in him and, and kind of doesn't think Iverson should ever talk unless it's like the most controlled of environments. And so I knew that reality, but like he, but he just has a way of making you feel hopeful. And, you know, I definitely left there thinking that I had a shot and like, my God, like what would this be? You know, if he does talk to me, you know, like, is it, does that make it better? Does it make it, you know, not as good. I don't know. And like, I think in some ways, you know, this story as I would call it is good because he didn't talk, but like I, by then I had all the reporting, you know, I got the manager from TGI Fridays. I got like some of the, you know, friends from way back, you know, which I probably only got because he didn't talk. And you, and you know, this as well as anybody, like you just kind of hit a different gear when you're not going to get the principal subject. But like, had he talked to me after I had gotten all that, it probably wouldn't have been pretty interesting. But I don't know what he would have said. I have no idea. I mean, would he have denied everything? Would he have, you know, gotten Tawana to tell me that, you know, she, you know, made up some stuff on the witness stand? I don't know. I mean, I think in, anything is entirely possible there. Do you in- independently try to reach Tawana as well? Like, is there some way? I did. I mean, I, I went through the attorney. I went to Atlanta. Um you know, knocked on a couple of doors. She had moved around a lot, um, but I never got face to face with her, unfortunately. And I think the closest I really got was with the attorney. And he considered, you know, putting her with me because at the time, Iverson and Tawana were kind of getting back together, kind of, kind of, sort of. And that's just sort of what it's been. I mean, I haven't kept up with this, you know, as as well in the last year or two. But I mean, they they just have a different kind of relationship. I mean, for a while. He was living in Miami or Charlotte or both, and she was still in Atlanta. And like basically, you know, hey, when I'm in Atlanta, I'll, you know, we'll stay together. And so, I mean, that's, I mean, they make it work somehow until they don't make it work anymore, and they take these kind of extended, very violent breaks, and right. they wind up getting back together again. And and you know, at least unless something's changed, I mean, that's been sort of the story of the last twenty five ish years. I just want to say, when I was at Sports Illustrated, maybe two thousand one, two thousand two. I was covering baseball, but it was the off season and they assigned me an Iverson story. I went down to Philly and the PR person said, Oh yeah, I, I've arranged a time for him to sit down with you. And I get there and I walk into the locker room and I sort of, he's on his cell phone screaming, bitch, I told you about it. He comes charging out and, uh, the PR woman goes, uh, maybe not such a good time. When do you get him tomorrow at practice? I show up at practice, comes in and out, doesn't even give me a second. I actually, Call my editors and I'm like, they're going to wherever, Miami. I follow them to Miami. I don't get them. Then they go to Orlando. I finally 
it's uh it's the the end of a game against the magic and billy king the gm and pat croce both come up to me and say hey have you gone ai and i'm like no and my story's due and blah 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 billy king after the game is like follow me he leads me into the sixers locker room uh and the media is all around and and billy king goes up to iverson and he says this is the si guy he's been trying to get you for four days you have to talk to him iverson is walking out of the locker room he says si guy follow me i'm walking through the bows of the stadium of the arena where he's like okay what do you want to and then all of a sudden out of no literally out of nowhere warren sap and Derek brooks from these tampa bay buccaneers sort of <laughs> show up hey ai ai i'm standing there then we start walking again dennis scott out of nowhere they're talking we get to the bus the motor's running. Everybody, including Larry Brown, is on the bus. Iverson looks at me and says, all right, what do you want to know? And I go, don't worry about it. All right, bro. And he runs onto the bus. I go home, and in my immature state, I start writing this fuck Iverson story. Basically, my five <laughs> days or four days chasing Allen Iverson. I'm sitting literally at my computer in my apartment in New York City. The phone rings. It's Iverson. And he gives me like the 50 greatest minutes of interview you could have. And I scrap the fuck Iverson story and just write a profile of Allen Iverson. There's my Allen Iverson experience, which I feel like was was uh, verified a thousand times over in your book. It, as you're as you're telling me the story, I mean, like I'm you know sitting here thinking like where where is he going? I mean, because like you could have ended up in Atlantic City, you could have ended up <laughs> you know like is like a Sopranos TGI like Friday's bar on peyote. Yeah, I mean like like that could have gone anywhere. I mean like and that's the thing like when you get into that sort of Iverson vortex like it's awesome it's scary it's fucked up I mean like it's all of these things but like one thing that it 100% is is fascinating and you know like that's why you know people ask me a ton like do I like him do I not like him man I don't know if I want to hang out with him I certainly don't want to like commit myself to go hanging out with him but like it's just like a character I mean he's unbelievable and you know because I mean like I was like for something completely different. I was just in Atlantic city. And like, I remember all these, like all, I was just like asking all these bartenders, like, Hey, did you see, ever see AI up here? Oh yeah. Like you went and pissed in that planter over there. You know I mean? Like you just hear these stories. I mean, I, so many stories that I heard that are entirely credible, never made the book. I mean, like one of my favorites is like that he and his mom, you know, back during the kind of height of his fame, uh, went to the mall, you know, somewhere in Philadelphia, I guess in, <clears throat> and did some shopping, whatever, walked outside. Oh God, where's the car? Where'd we park? You know, walk a little bit, you know, where's the car? Uh, yada, yada, yada. They wound up walking across the parking lot or walking across the street and buying a new car. They just left the car there. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it's believable because it's Alan Iverson. I mean, like I could see him just being like, you know what? I'm not going to spend three minutes looking for my car. I'm going to go buy another car. I have more money than time right now. And it also, leads to an eventuality that a guy that has like a bottomless pit of money, it seems runs out eventually. And so, you know, I, I don't, I don't know that I've ever met any more, anybody more colorful and live for today and F tomorrow. I, I don't know that I have. And like, there's something kind of fascinating about that. There's also something kind of scary about it. And so like, I don't know. I mean, I'm glad that you didn't wind up at a strip club or, you know, somewhere like in Newport News, Virginia that night. And I'll have to go yeah. back and read your story. I don't remember that one, but I'd also like to read the, the B-side fuck Iverson story. Yeah, it doesn't exist anymore. The thing I find sad about Iverson is like you look at his contemporaries, you know, like, like you look at Stefan Marbury. He has his career in China and he ends up living there and he becomes this sort of 
guy who really understands himself and kind of learns to love himself and where he is. Or you look at a Ray Allen or a Sharif Abdul Rahim, these guys who sort of, they had their careers and they kind of moved on and they, they progressed with life. And it seems like that guy is eternally stuck in 2001. Like he is just 2001. He will never mentally progress. He's not going back to college. He's not opening a movie theater. You know, he's not becoming this lovable, great dad. It just seems like he's stuck in time. And it kind of is heartbreaking. It is. And, you know, I mean, even when the big three league came out, you know, that was when Iverson was supposed to be back, you know, like he's, he's coming back and, you know, like I, maybe I'm just like a greasy old cynic, but like, I just remember thinking like, this is just not going to end well. And, you know, sure enough, I mean, I, and I think, you know, just to your point, I mean, I think when, when he got out there, I mean, for one, I think the one thing, the one constant in his life or the one thing he thinks is a constant is basketball. I think he deep down believes he could still play in the NBA today and he's 43 or whatever he is. And, you know, like you look at him, I mean, he's just, he's in awful shape. I mean, he's still like a little guy, but like, he's certainly not in like what you'd say is good shape, but like, you know, when the big three league came out, I mean, I think that he expected to be MVP Iverson back then or like in 2016 or whatever that would have been. And when he got out there and he couldn't do it and he just can't run and he's out of breath and he's a regular old 40 something year old guy. I think like he can't deal with that. And I just don't think he knows what to do with it. And, and so he just quit, you know, and that's just kind of what he does. I mean, his like, you know, fight or flight, you know, it used to be that he would just fight every time. And now I think it's flight. And like, I think he just like gets out in, you know, like whether that's, you know, a marriage or, you know, some kind of professional relationship. I mean, that, this guy has walked away for more easy money than probably anybody in sports history. And, you know, and I, I don't know why that is, but like, I mean, there's an anecdote in the book that I can't even believe I remember now, but like, it's, it's about like how it would take, you know, I, I think they would have to reserve recording space or like if they were doing a commercial or something, they would have to reserve like two days because they just didn't know when Iverson would show up or if he would show up. And it would take him like 10 hours to get across town because he just didn't know where he was going to go. And, you know, like that's, I don't know. I mean, I just like, you kind of wish that he was a little more responsible, but if he were a little more responsible, would he have ever become that Iverson that, that people like me sort of fell in love with? And I just, I don't think you can be one without the other. I think he's sort of this, you know, this weird chemical reaction and is all in. And if he, if he had been like a little bit less hit the gas, then I don't think he ever becomes, you know, the answer. If he had been, you know, a little bit more irresponsible, I don't think he ever makes the league. I mean, so he's sort of this like perfect storm that, you know, was here and gone in kind of a flash, if you think about it. Do you get nervous ever knocking on doors, cold calling people? Uh, is there a way you go about it? Do you text before you call? You know, do you, how do you, how do you approach people? I really hate it. I mean, for one, I mean, like it's probably my least favorite thing that I have to do. Um, I mean, I do get really nervous. I mean, because it's just like, an, it's not a natural thing. I mean, as far as like our social rules are set, I mean, like just like going up to somebody who doesn't want to be gone up to, because you don't know what they're going to do. I mean, a lot of these people, you know, we're, we're writing stories about them, not because everything is good, you know, and like, they're not yeah. super happy to see us and, and spill their guts. And so, I mean, going up to Iverson was okay because it was in a crowd, but like, how'd I go? I mean, I, so I staked out, I think I say this in the acknowledgements. I, I sat in the damn PF Chang's bar in Atlanta and like in a pretty depressing part of Atlanta, like near this like shuttered old mall. 
uh, for like six hours, just like waiting on him to come in because like that was his haunt. And, you know, like I, in the, like you read, you play, like, what are the possibilities? What's he going to say? Is he going to throw you out? Is he going to fight you? And it's just like this, like super unnatural thing that like, I really don't like, but it's also really necessary for what we do for a living. And so, I mean, it takes a level of like psyching myself up, I guess. I mean, like I sort of get in character where I don't care and, you know, like I, pretend that it's funny if they hang up on me or curse at me or whatever. And like, it's not, I mean, it's, I still don't like it. Um, because I mean, like, it's just hard for like somebody to say those things to you and, you know, you not take it personally. And, you know, that happens a lot. And it's in my line of work. I mean, I do a lot of what you, you do. And like, this, like I write about these people. I, I write around, you know, people who don't want to be written about. And, you know, I'm, I'm told no an awful lot and I'm not very good at taking no for an answer. And that's part of what I think makes me good for my, good at my job. But I don't think it makes me a better human being in a lot of ways because I think it kind of twists my circuits up. Um, but anyway, like that's, I'm kind of getting down the rabbit hole here, but, um, I don't like doing it, but, but I think you have, you have to in this job. Well, I just think, I think there's a, uh, there's a misunderstanding or mercy that we like harassing people and we like making the hundredth call to get so-and-so and you know all right i'm going to call this guy every day until he picks up or i'm going to text him every day until he i'm in the process right now i've been blown off for four or five straight interviews with a with an nba player and he agreed to talk and he blew me off and he said call me at this time and he's blown me off and people think like you get a charge off of this sort of pursuit i'm just fucking sick of it and i'm i hate it I think it's a universe. There are very few of us who love harassing people. <laughs> you know, most of us, I think, are horrified by it, but we just see it as a part of the job. Yeah. And I mean, I would say, and I don't know the circumstances of what you're dealing with. I mean, the only time that I take any kind of like perverse joy in that is when I think somebody's screwing with me, you know, and like if, you know, I could be as passive aggressive as anybody. And if somebody like tells me they're going to talk to me, then for me, like that, the gate is down, you know, like you said you would. We're going to talk and we can do this sort of the easy way or the hard way. <laughs> and I mean, that's where I don't feel bad about just like blowing them the hell up. And like, I'll camp out. I'll approach you at a, you know, quickie mart. It doesn't matter. I mean, like you said, we're going to talk. So let's do it now. I mean, I do believe in the power of annoyance and the submission when it comes to journalism. And I mean, it's probably my yep. greatest tool. I can be extremely annoying and <laughs> it's just, it's when people are for one, it's like when they're regular people. I mean, that's when I can't deal with it like when i've got to keep hitting people up and you know they're going through some bad stuff but you have to have an answer of some kind even if that answer is no you know like the ignoring me thing is the worst because i have to keep hitting you up until you tell me to f off <clears throat> and you know even even if you do i have to like make sure you're not having a bad day it's just like all this like weird psychological stuff that and I think it like helps in some ways. I mean, like if I don't get what I want at the airport or something like that, you know, I keep at it and maybe I will. But, you know, is it good in kind of regular day to day conversations? I'm sure it is not. But like, no, I mean, people who think that that's like a part of the fun other than, you know, my little kind of if you're going to mess with me, I'm going to mess with you right back. I mean, that's the only time I think it's like a game, but like just. 95% of the time, I think it's miserable. I can't stand doing it. And I know that they hate it, but you know, what if the 37th time I call you is the time you pick up, you know, and like, I got to get you, I got to try. And I tried every which way to get Iverson. I've tried every which way to get people like Chip Kelly. And I mean, it just, it, 
you know, you got to try. And that, that's what I think it is. And I think at the end of the day, a lot of these people wind up kind of respecting it. Um, but, you know, I'm sure that's not everybody. Before you continue with Two Riders Sling and Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my sister-in-law, Jessica, who has never approved of me. I have never approved of you. Seriously, I don't get it. Do you want me to break it down for you? Well... Okay, so you smell like ass, you dress like a bum, you can't dance, sing, cook, or rap. Your favorite movie is The Cable Guy, your face looks like a giant phallus, you make really weird noises, your farts smell like apple pie. Wait, isn't that a good thing? No! Well, what if I tell you this podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. And I can hook you up with some throwback USFL jerseys, some XFL hats, Portland State t-shirts... You just go to 503-sports.com and you can check out the goods. Anything you want. My sister's lucky to have you. You've written a lot of really interesting stories. Uh, I, I actually picked one for the Best American Sports Writing this past year called There's Nowhere to Run. And there was a story of Larry Johnson, the former Kansas City Chief halfback. I'm going to read the lead real quick. It's one of, my, one of my absolute favorite stories of the year. He answers forward with jets overhead and the ground 50 stories below. Larry Johnson can feel it happening. The arrival, he calls it, of the demons. They push him toward the barrier of a rooftop deck on a, of an apartment building where he sometimes comes to visit a friend. And in moments like these, there's a strengthening urge, an almost overwhelming curiosity, he describes it, to jump. One is telling you to do it. One is telling you don't, says Johnson, a former NFL running back. One is telling you it'd be fun. It is early November, less than two weeks before his 38th birthday. He played his last game in 2011, and now he believes he suffers from the degenerative uh, brain disorder linked to more than 100 former football players. For now, CTE can be confirmed only after death, but Johnson says his symptoms, anxiety, paranoia, the occasional self-destructive impulse, are consistent with those of past uh, victims. And this afternoon, he shuffles closer to the ledge, past the drainage fixture, a foot or uh, so from the glass barrier. His body is tingling, he says. His thoughts are filled with static. They say when you die, Johnson says, looking down, you feel that euphoric feeling. Closer now. He's frightened, less of the fall than the direction of his own mind. What would it be like, he says, for this to be the day people to find out you're not here. Most of these stories weren't that you pick for this book. The sort of series head, Glenn Stout, sends you whatever, a bushel of 300 stories without bylines and you just read them. That one I actually read in the Washington Post. As soon as I read it, I was like, that one's going in. I just thought that was a classic sort of masterclass job. I'm profiling a really conflicted guy, a guy with a lot of demons a guy with a past, an abusive past, and making you feel both horrified and sympathetic toward him. Um, how did that even come to be? How do you even get that piece? So, I mean, there's, there's quite a bit of backstory here. Uh, so I covered Larry Johnson as a member of the Kansas City Chiefs uh, when I was a beat writer of that team for the Kansas City Star. And, you know, even then he was sort of this troubled, but like can't help himself honest guy. And like right before he got cut, which I think was 09, I uh, might have been 2010. Um, I mean, I never really liked him. I, he was just like one of those guys in the locker room. You don't really want to go. He's just like in a bad mood most of the time. And like, you just, who needs that? You know, he's usually going to tell you to go away. Uh, but you got to try him because he was like the best player on the team. But like after a game, you know, one night, I mean, like I, they, the Chiefs were terrible during almost the whole time that I covered them. And uh, he was feuding with Todd Haley. He hated the fact that Todd Haley had never played football at like any kind of meaningful level. And so, Johnson had been tweeted about uh, Todd Haley like pursuing this pro golf career in the in the past in the previous few days, and then after this game, all he would say to any question was ego. You know, Larry, what do you think about the way you know the defense? Blah blah blah. Ego. 
you know, Larry, you know, do you think you guys could have done this? Ego. That's all he would say. And I was just like, my God, man, like this guy is just like a different kind of bird. And so he got released not very long after that for using a gay slur in the locker room, which my recorder happened to pick up. And so he and I are kind of, you know, weirdly linked, I feel like. And, you know, I didn't think, I mean, we didn't have any kind of relationship back then. You know, I was just like a guy. Um, but so I didn't think he would remember me, but he did. I mean, he remembered virtually everybody in the media. And so I just emailed him, you know, one day, you know, it was the day of that big eclipse last year. Right? And I don't remember when this would have been, but I mean, everybody knows when that damn eclipse was. And I just like happened to email him that day and been like, Hey man, I saw your tweet. It was the day that the Aaron Hernandez, um, like CTE report came out and he had a severe case of it. Hernandez did. And I remember right. uh, Johnson tweeting, Man, if he had it, I know I had it. I like something like that. Like I'm a hundred percent sure I do something. I was just, I've never heard anybody put it like that. So I just emailed him like, you know, Hey, I'd love to, like, love to come down just to, you know, or like have a phone call with you. Let's just like see if there's something there. And the whole time, the whole time he was just like, yes, absolutely. Whatever you want to do, I'm in. And I mean, like it just really couldn't have been easier. And you know, from that stand standpoint, but like, you know, I was just like, you know, I want to see you. You know, with your daughter, kind of how you interact with, with her. Yes, absolutely. And then like you get down there and it's, it's, he's amazing and is telling me all this stuff is almost like talking too fast. You know, like you got to slow him down somewhat. Um, and I wound up spending like parts of three days with him. Um, and just like sort of seeing him in various environments and in, in his real life and talking to him on the phone a good bit after. And I mean, eventually I saw, I, I saw a lot of this. I mean, he sort of went berserk on me it was uh you know shortly before the story ran and this is like i've got to be careful what i say here because i mean some of this was i did sort of grant him off the record um you know for my own kind of reasons but like he had told me something about his dad that he didn't ultimately want in the story and i called the dad you know who was and is an assistant coach at ohio state the dad denied it, which cool, like fair enough. Like I've got to get it corroborated. If that's, if you can't corroborate it, you know, whatever, I'll move on. Um, Larry called me. It was the week, it was the weekend of Thanksgiving and just like screaming at me, just absolutely screaming. You know, why would you call my dad? How dare you call my dad? How did you even find his number? I was like, Larry, you gave it to me. You told me to call him. And I mean, it was just like stuff like that where he would forget what he told me. He would forget that I had, that he had said that I could call or, you know, welcomed me to call certain individuals. Um, you know, there were several conversations where, you know, he would say, how did you even know that? And I would say, Larry, you told me that, you know, stuff like that. So, you know, this is, I know this is a mouthful, but it was just kind of this overwhelming, extremely stressful, you know, kind of experience that I've never gotten inside somebody's head like that. And, you know, I, I had to go and see a, a therapist for anxiety after that. And I still see that therapist, but like, I've never wondered if I live in the matrix more than, than after dealing with Larry Johnson and like whether his mind is working, you know, what is real, like, or my own kind of, you know, lines getting twisted here. And so like, I, there was just a lot of questions I asked myself that, you know, like this, this, this job can be crazy sometimes. And, you know, like, I just, I just remember I've never felt like that. You know, I mean, like, like, I'm just like, okay, what happens if this guy does leap off the building? What am I going to do? You know, like, is he doing it because I'm here? I mean, like, that's just, those are not easy things to process. And so, like, I'm really happy that the story turned out well. I'm extremely proud of it. 
But I mean, like, I just think some of these things, like at the end of the day, sometimes take a toll. They do for me anyway. I just like, I, I don't know if anybody can possibly understand that, but like, it's just, it's hard to get inside the heads of these people and not have it affect you a little bit. One of the biggest changes for me as a younger writer to older writer uh, is the question I would no longer ask anyone is, is he a good guy about anybody? Is he a good guy? Yeah. Is she a good person? Because it's not real. It's not a real. And Iverson and Larry Johnson are really two perfect examples of that. The answer is, is who the hell knows? They're kind of both and neither. And it's yes and yes. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. It's yeah. I mean, Larry Johnson, there's a picture that ran with that story of him with his daughter and he's helping her with her homework. It's one of those beautiful, it's this beautiful girl and she's looking at him, doe eyed and he's covered up with tats and he's trying to help with the homework. And I thought the story painted this guy who absolutely just loved his daughter, like loved his daughter and would do anything for this girl. And at the same time, kind of feels like he's losing his mind. Um, and it's just a fascinating sort of yin and yang of life or something. I mean, I just thought it was amazing. I, I think, I think one of the great lessons for young writers truly is that there's no such thing as someone is a good guy or a bad guy, that we are a million different shades of everything. Yeah. And I just, I, I mean, I tell younger writers this all the time. I mean, you have to paint these individuals three dimensionally. And I used to be entirely guilty of taking a side or writing fluff piece or hack piece and you know no i mean like the stories that i write now you know i don't know can't exactly say if they're better but i think that they're more real i think they're more three-dimensional i mean like you could be doing the best thing in the world but there's something kind of eating at you and what is that you know or else like i shouldn't be writing a story i mean like if something is compelling you to do these like even wonderful things well what is it <laughs> you know i mean like some some people have I mean, everybody has this kind of gnawing tension in their life. And, you know, I think it's our job to try to get at that. And it's just like, I just don't think anybody, anybody is inherently or universally good or bad. And so, like, I think, like, where they fall on the spectrum, you know, I, I yeah, I mean, I think Iverson and LJ are probably about as close to the center of that spectrum as anybody that I've ever dealt with. And, you know, I remember texting a, a really good friend of mine in Kansas City when I was with LJ the night. I mean, so the, the very scene you're talking about when he was helping his daughter with uh, with her homework. I mean, I had been with him that morning. We had gone to that high rise, and like so, then then we went and picked up his daughter, go back to the apartment. So I had a freelance photographer with me that day who lives down in Fort Lauderdale, and I just remember the the, the photographer kind of pulled me aside. He's just like, "I think we need to leave," and I'm just, "Well, I need to hang out for just another minute." He's like, "I don't know, man. Like, I just I feel like something bad's going to happen here," and. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, and then like I waited, you know, man, this is right when, you know, in that story where he like flings the watch outside, just like kind of, I mean, nothing is happening, mind you. Like, this is not like a, you know, super tense moment. I mean, like, it's just like a, a watch is going off in the other room and he slings it outside in the yard. And so I just like pull him aside. And I'm like, hey, man, like, you know, do you need us to take off for a little bit? He's like, yes, I, I really do. Like, I need a break. And I'm like, cool. Absolutely. Like, I, you know, for future reference, please ask me to piss off like and i tell people that all the time like i'm a big boy if you need me to piss off just tell me that like you're not going to hurt my feelings if, if that's what you need and then like i went back to his house that night to watch monday night football and he just couldn't have been nicer couldn't have been cooler but i texted a friend of mine you know like i, I like this guy is going to do something bad in his life either to himself or somebody else and what do you do with that you know and this is what i was talking about like because I'm writing that story, is is something going to happen? Like, have I lit the fuse? If I now don't write the story, is he going to feel some kind of way? And 
you know, I just don't know. And like, thankfully, and I texted with him just a week or two ago after the Kareem Hunt stuff came out. And I do think he's a very valuable voice, you know, during times like that, because like he will own kind of his badness. Um, but like, I mean, I, I think that it's, if he is a good guy, if any part of him is a good guy, it takes a whole lot of work for him to be that good guy. I think he naturally, you know, is a bad guy. And I think he would tell you that. And it just takes all of this kind of maintenance and work and, you know, whatever, you know, mental health exercises he's doing today to be that good guy. You know, just even if it's for a glimmer of a minute, you know, it's just extremely hard for him. And I don't know what that's like. And and so anyway, like it was a that was one hell of an experience. That sounds like it beat you up as much as it beat him up for people who think this job is. I mean, I, I love my job. I I was created, I think, to do some version of this insane job. I just love it. And I find, you know, my own kind of therapy through it because like I'm fascinated by people and, and what makes them go and like my weird, you know, stuff, you know, it makes me feel better about it. And I mean, like, is that a great reason to do this? Maybe not, but like, it helps me. It's just like a good like side reason. But yeah, I mean, like spending three days in the universe of like Larry Johnson or Alan Iverson or LeVar Ball, like you just start to question like what reality is sometime. And, and I, I sometimes try to, while I try to be encouraging to young reporters, you know, it's not all, you know, sunshine and unicorns. Like, I think you have to be real and this is real life ideally. And so, you know, like I, I try to tell people like, this is extremely hard and like, it doesn't seem like it because it's sports, but it's hard. I would still take three days on an off assignment over sitting behind a desk at my law firm. I, I would not I would. succeed in that environment. I would not, yeah. and I agree with you. Like my wife yeah. is a very successful accountant and I love my wife. We've been together for a million years, but like she tells me the kind of work she does, it gets her fired up. And I'm like, what, you know, and it's all just like, you've got to like sit at your desk and it's like, couldn't do it. I just like, I, like I'm not wired that way. And, and I'm just, I'm so lucky that I found this like crazy ass thing to do for a living because I, I don't know what I would do if, if it weren't this. I want to thank today's guest, Kent Babb, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Kent on Twitter at Kent Babb and read his work in the Washington Post. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Visit the website at 503-sports.com. My still newish book, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazy Demise of the USFL, is available everywhere. One can listen to Two Writers Slinging Yang on Apple Podcasts and Google Play, and your views are always appreciated. Music is by the insane MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.